0: He is risen indeed. And so we remember the familiar greeting that Christians use this time of year. I'm not sure why we don't use it other times, but we definitely use it at Easter. And on this Easter weekend, we are celebrating He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm really pleased to welcome you to the program on this Easter weekend. This is the event that Christians remember and rely on. It gives us confidence and hope, and resurrection really matters. And as I like to say, and probably say too often for some people, resurrection never ends. And that's the point. Well, here's on the program. Faith is we work with each other and we challenge each other and we stretch our understanding and our confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because we have defined faith as faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we want to grow that confidence. We want to reinforce that confidence. We want to express that confidence so that we live before God confident and confident in him and what he has done and who he is, and that we can rely on his promises. I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. A great congregation. They are incredibly supportive. They are pleased for us to bring this program to you. And one of the really great things that you should understand about our church, and I hope this is true of your church and of every church, I'm not convinced that it is, but our church really believes that we should talk about what the Bible says, and we should hear from God and what He has to say, whether we like it or not. We don't want to create God in our image. We want to understand God as He's revealed in the pages of Scripture, and one of the things that we understand is that He is risen, and that indeed makes all the difference, all the difference in the world. Now, there's a lot of great things about Easter, and there's a lot of great things about the celebration of Easter, but one of the things that, that I've liked for a long time, I guess I probably haven't used this particular story because I have assumed that people have probably heard it, but uh, every Easter it seems like I'm reminded about the, the old story of the Sunday school teacher who asked the children in his class to bring plastic eggs on Easter Sunday. He prepared them a week or two ahead of time Began to talk about Easter and its significance. And he said to the children, Get a plastic Easter egg. You're familiar with the kind that he was talking about, the kind that you can put something inside, and then you put it back together and you have a surprise inside. And so he encouraged the children to find a plastic Easter egg and to put something inside their egg that reminded them about Easter or was a symbol of the meaning of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. So having prepared them, they arrived on that Easter Sunday morning, all excited with their eggs and ready to share them with the class. And so the teacher, as part of the lesson that day to teach them about the resurrection of Jesus, took each egg in turn and opened it so the whole class could see and everyone could be delighted by what they had all put in their Easter eggs. And so he took the first one and and opened that egg, and one of the children had put in a really tiny flower, small enough to fit inside the egg. And the teacher talked about how that flower and the children recognized that flower symbolized the idea of new life. And that was true of the resurrection, because with the resurrection of Jesus, it reminds us we can have new life. So they talked about the flower and its beauty and its symbolism for the children. He picked up another egg and looked at it and then opened it, and inside he found a picture that that child had drawn, a picture of Christ. And so the teacher talked about that a little bit. Now, the the drawing was like a child would make using crayons, and and it was well done for the children of that age. And he reminded them that, that Christ really was the central figure of Easter. You know, it's easy for us to get distracted by Easter bunnies or Easter baskets or decorations, new Easter hats for some of us, or a new Easter outfit. Nothing particularly wrong with those things to remind us of the joys of the season, but he wanted to make sure they understand what this child had pointed out to all of them, that Christ was the central focus. And you know, that's a good reminder for all of us. If something else becomes the central focus, if our family celebrations become more important than taking time to show up for services during Easter season, then we have missed the point of Easter. And so he reminded them that that child's drawing, that child's crayon picture of Christ was absolutely significant because it reminds us all to not miss the central focus on Jesus and his resurrection. So the teacher, having talked about that a little bit, picked up another Easter egg that one of the children had brought in and and opened that for all of them to see. And that particular egg had rattled when he shook it, just to kind of get an idea what might be in it. And he didn't know for sure, but when he opened it, yes, there it was, a tiny nail, a real small nail that fit in the Easter egg. And of course, the children all recognized that. That reminded them that Jesus really had died on Good Friday, what we call Good Friday. He really had been Nailed to a cross, and he really did die for our sins. And the teacher reminded them of that significance that because Jesus died, now we can live. Because Jesus took the penalty, the rightful and appropriate penalty for our sins, that we can now live forever with him. And the nail reminds us of that solemn reality that he was the substitute for sin. He picked up another egg and this one rattled too. And he kind of enjoyed that. And they had a good time thinking about what might be inside. And of course, the one child that brought it knew what was inside. And and he opened the egg and lo and behold, what rolled out was a small round pebble. And of course, they all recognized that that was a reminder that there had been a stone rolled over the entrance to the tomb and a guard posted to make sure that no one tampered with or as they feared, stole the body of Jesus. And so they talked about the significance of that stone. And if you've ever seen an ancient tomb, you might remember having seen a round stone and how it was rolled down a slight incline to cover the entrance of the tomb. And it would have taken several people to roll that stone back, and it was rolled back when the tomb was needed another time. So they did occasionally roll the stone back, and it was possible, but it was a very heavy stone, and it was put in place by the people, particularly the people that were concerned that Jesus' body might be stolen. They didn't really take seriously the idea of resurrection, but they did take seriously the idea that someone might come along and try to steal the body, and by doing that, thereby propagating a hoax on the whole world, And instead of putting an end to what they thought was their problem with Jesus, it would just continue. So the stone was rolled into place. A Roman seal was put on it to ensure that no one would tamper with it. And everybody thought that was the end of that. Well, of course, we know the rest of the story. And the teacher reminded them of the rest of the story. It wasn't that someone came along and tampered with the tomb or that someone came along to steal the body. It was that a power greater than any power anywhere had come along and rolled that stone away, shattered the seal, because there was a higher authority than the Roman authority, and they did that to allow the resurrected body to come forth from the tomb. And all because of that small round pebble, the teacher reminded the children of the story. Well, they'd had quite a great class, and and one egg remained, and so the teacher moved to that egg. It was the egg of a seven-year-old boy who, he had some challenges in his life, and he wasn't always able to keep up with all of the other kids, and and so the teacher was never quite sure what he would come up with, but they included him. They, they wanted him to be a part of things. His name was Brian, and and they asked for Brian's egg and so they opened Brian's egg now before they opened it they shook it but they didn't hear anything and so that was interesting but of course you wouldn't have heard the rattle of a flower inside the egg either so that doesn't cause them great concern but the teacher was still not sure what Brian would have come up with but they opened the egg and to everyone's surprise everyone's surprise except Brian there was nothing inside the egg was Empty. Well, that was a little concerning because the teacher wasn't quite sure what Brian had in mind. And so the teacher paused for a moment before he began to talk about that egg. And Brian filled the silence when he announced, It's full of emptiness, just like the tomb of Jesus. And you know, you have to smile when you think about that. That's just like a little boy. It's full of emptiness, just like the tomb of Jesus. Well, arguably, his was the best lesson of all, because of all of the reminders, the empty tomb is a significant reminder when it comes to the story of Jesus. It makes all the difference that the tomb was empty, and we celebrate he is risen. We celebrate because Easter never ends. So, let's read the story of that first Easter morning from Luke's gospel. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. I want to read it from the New Living Translation. It's just a very easy translation to understand, and you've heard me talk about it before. I haven't done it for a while, but there are so many wonderful English translations, and I encourage you to find the one that you will read and benefit from. You know, there's no benefit from reading a Bible you can't understand. There's no benefit from having a dozen Bibles you do not read. So, find one. There are many reliable English translations. Find one that you are comfortable reading. The New Living Translation is one of those. I read from it from time to time, and we'll use it a couple of times here on the program today, and this is the first one. I also use the other translations. If you've listened, you know that, but it's very important to find a Bible that you will read, and it's very important to find a Bible that you understand. Because it's the Bible story. It's the essence of the message that matters. It's not the particular translation. We benefit from many of them. So take advantage of what God has given us by giving us so many copies, so many translations of the Bible that we can read in our language, English. So from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 from the New Living Translation. Very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? Then they remembered that he had said this, So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened." Well, we don't have to wonder what had happened. We know what had happened, and so did Peter discover in a short while that, indeed, the Savior of the world who had died on Good Friday was now missing from the tomb because he was alive. Resurrection had happened. And now resurrection never ends. And now we greet each other. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, I had the privilege a few years ago of, of seeing some empty tombs in Israel. Uh, I went on a trip, uh, tour took took uh, advantage of a tour from a guide that I knew, and he had gone many times to Israel and I had confidence that he really understood a lot of the sites and a lot of the background of things. And so. I'd thought about it for a long time. I always thought I didn't know enough about the geography and the history of the Bible to really benefit from that. But everybody had said, no, you just need to go because being there is just different. Well, that was true. And being there was different. And there would be no amount of education that I could have had that would have made it any more meaningful. You just have to see some of these things to begin to get a grasp of them. And so I went on the trip. That was a great trip. It was incredibly formative. It helped me understand the Bible better. And it allowed me to experience some of the the sense of wonder that is associated with the stories of the Bible. And one of the places we visited was called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You can still visit it today. It's a a very popular site for pilgrims to, to visit when they go to Israel. A lot of people go there from a lot of different Christian traditions. And we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Well, I didn't really have a grasp of what was going on. And as I look back on it, I wish I had had a better grasp. It's just, I think, because everything was just rather overwhelming, there was so much to take in. But I do remember some significant things about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It didn't have a particularly Striking entrance. It was rather plain. It seemed to me, uh, but we went in and and began to look around. And we were pretty much free to to walk around inside the church. It was it was quite elaborate. There are many altars there, many areas in that church. It's very different than what we think about as a church in our in our context. So we walked in, and the first thing that I remember seeing was a was a slab of stone, and and. I was taken aback a little bit by the way people were responding to that slab of stone. I didn't quite know until it was explained to us that, that people believe that that might well be the stone where Jesus' body was laid, and they prepared him for burial in the tomb. You see, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre geographically is located in a spot that is possible to have contained in that area the events of Good Friday the burial of Jesus, and resurrection on Sunday. And so that stone is believed to be, and tradition has it, that that's where they laid the body of Jesus to prepare him for burial. And so people would, would bow at that, at that stone, at that altar, and pray in honor of and appreciation for the sacrifice that Jesus made. Well, it, those kinds of things had never really resonated with me, but I still thought it was quite striking that that could be the place. Nearby, within the confines of the church, and up some stairs was another altar that had been constructed, and you could see through some glass coverings that it covered a stone, and it was the place that, that many people believe that where the crucifixion actually took place. Now, of course, the crucifixion took place outside, and, and we were inside because the church had been erected to preserve the spot, to, to honor and keep holy those areas, and, and you, could, you could duck down under the altar, and there was a, a, a particular spot where there was a hole that you could put your hand down through and actually touch the stone that is believed was the place of the crucifixion. And so you see many people come in and bow down and, and, and go under that altar to reach down to touch that stone to honor the great sacrifice that Jesus had made that's quite striking because i had not ever been around the a, a sense where you would venerate or honor a place like that but many people did many of the pilgrims that were visiting the church on that day did that the, the st- other striking thing and the really the, probably the most striking thing about the church of the holy sepulcher was the area that was set apart and identified as the tomb of jesus now the really interesting about that is that yes it was empty, just like Brian's egg. It was empty. That tomb was clearly empty, and it had been identified years before as the tomb of Jesus, and so it had been carefully preserved and and decorated in different ways. Uh, Some marble slabs covered part of it to make sure that it was properly preserved, but you could walk into the tiny space that was the tomb, and you could stand and look down at at the place that may have been the burial place of Jesus. Now, I say may have been. Many people believe it, it actually is uh, or, or was, however you want to say that, the actual spot where Jesus was buried. I don't know that we can know any of this with certainty. As I recall, there, there were evidences that it could well have been both geographic and, and archaeological, but we don't know for sure. I'll tell you about another space that, that we also visited. We don't know for sure if that's the, the actual burial site. But, you know, it didn't matter to me, and it doesn't to this day, whether that was or is the actual site where they laid Jesus' body. What matters is that it's not there, it's empty. And I was struck by how much attention had been given to preserving that site out of reverence for the reality that the risen Christ no longer occupied a tomb, that the death of Jesus being a reality did not control the narrative. The resurrection did, and he was not there. And so in in all of the overwhelming, uh, sensual overload of that church, and it really is magnificent, and it really was uh, beyond anything I had seen, and so there's a lot to take in. Walking into that small chamber that could have been the place where Jesus was buried was a striking part of the tour. Now, I say that We don't know for sure. There is evidence both because of the location of it geographically and also archaeological evidence because nearby in that same area was discovered evidence that that was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the man who provided the opportunity for Jesus' body to be buried in his tomb. And so it's, it's possible. We just don't know for sure. I suspect, and I can't prove this, that God keeps us from knowing for sure because of how we might treat a site that everybody knew was the site. I mean, we, we honor the site appropriately, I think, but can you imagine how some people might react if we knew for sure that that was the one and only place that it was? And I think maybe God didn't want us to idolize the site. He wants us to worship a risen Lord because He is risen and resurrection never ends. So it was great to visit that church and and impactful, and wouldn't I love to go again? Don't know if I will ever try to go again, but, but if you have the opportunity, I really want to encourage you to do that. I know travel has been difficult in the last few years, but don't give up on that. If the Lord is kind of prompting you to go, why not just find a tour group and go? There are many people that go. You will benefit from that. There's no perfect tour that I know of. You check out the ones that you feel comfortable with, and and just go, because you will experience things you could never imagine by taking that trip to Israel. Well, I'm not a tour guide, and I'm not selling tours, so let's also think about the other spot that is often identified, and by many people, they prefer to identify this spot as the actual tomb of Jesus. It's referred to as the garden tomb. And there's reasons to think that this could be the spot. There's a hill nearby that tomb that looks like the place of the skull that's described in the New Testament as the place of crucifixion. So geographically, there's some evidence that makes us think that this could be the place. It's in a garden, and sometimes people like to think of the the garden because of the experience of the women going to the tomb and and uh, the one gospel that tells us that they mistook the risen Christ one of them mistook the risen Christ for a gardener so we think about it in those terms and indeed the the area called the garden tomb is is a beautifully set apart place and it is garden like there's no question about it and once again you can walk into that garden area and it gives plenty of opportunity to walk around and And when we were there, we gathered in one spot in the garden, and and the leaders of our group and some of us who were pastors took took the lead in in conducting a communion service to remember the death of Jesus until he comes. And in that garden tomb, there is a a tomb where you can see that it's possible there could have been a stone that covered the entrance. It's not difficult to get in. The doorway is, is plenty large enough. You can duck and easily get inside. It's a small area inside, and indeed, there is a stone area where a body could well have been laid, and it could be. It's entirely possible that's the spot where Jesus' body was laid. Can we prove it? As far as I can tell, there is no proof for a a geographic location, as I said, but I'm telling you, when you go there and you see those spots and you realize the reality of a tomb, because they have tombs in that area of the world, not like any place I had been. Their practices were different than ours, but you can walk into the tomb and you can see it. You can see other tombs around there, and you get a real sense of what that was like, and a real sense that the tomb was empty. It really was. There are some tombs that they have found that were occupied from that era, but the tomb that we think might have been Jesus' tomb is empty. And that makes all the difference. And in that garden tomb, a, there's a sense of peace and calm. And, and you really get a sense that this, this could have been the place too. And I don't know which one might impact you the most. I can't remember really that one impacted me more than the other, but I was really, really struck by the idea that this could be the place and he's not here. And the important thing is he's not here. And the reason that's important is because sometimes people wonder, what is the what is the validation of, of the um, belief in God? What is the validation of Christian faith? And we should not at all hesitate to recognize and to assert that Christian faith is validated by the resurrection of Jesus, and that event alone speaks to and puts the stamp of reality and truth on all Christian belief, because if Jesus was able to die and overcome death, then that's like nothing else that's ever happened. No one else ever died and now lives again forever. Other people, and we read it in the Gospels, Lazarus, for one, was dead, and Jesus resurrected Lazarus. But Lazarus later died, like all people do, but only Jesus overcame death, and that's the validation for Christian faith. In fact, Corinthians puts it pretty plainly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, this chapter 15 can be rather dense when you read it in your English translation. That, that's, that, that's okay. I encourage you to consider reading it from the New Living Translation, because I think it helps us sort out the really important ideas here. But let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from the New Living Translation, starting with verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins in that case all who have died believing in christ are lost and if our hope in christ is only for this life we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world but in fact christ has been raised from the dead he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died and that concludes with verse 20 there's more in first corinthians 15 of course but the point is to remind us that Christianity rises or falls on resurrection. I have heard other people argue for other concepts that the Bible teaches and that they are the most important, and that if you don't believe them, then it discredits Christian faith. And to that I say poppycock. Well, that's not a very technical word, but I just, it's, just, it's just baloney. Well, there's another non technical word. The, the truth of the matter is, the whole truth of the matter is the validity of Christian faith rises or falls on the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus. The scriptures are clear about that. It should make obvious sense to us that if Jesus died, then he was no more than a mortal man. But he came as both human and divine, and the Spirit of the living Christ lives on today because the same Spirit that raised Jesus lives in us, and that Spirit is alive and well. And Jesus came out of that tomb, burst forth with new life and new hope for everyone, because death no longer has to be our controlling concern. Life is available to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We can have new life we can trust in him we can have faith or absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God because of the validity of Christian faith made valid in the resurrection of Jesus he is risen he is risen indeed and we're going to celebrate some more in just a moment you take a breath break and you enjoy that idea that he's alive and well and living and we are going to keep on celebrating because he is risen. This is Pastor Rick. I'll be right back in just a moment.
1: If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on AmericaOutLoud.com and use code OutLoud for 20% off. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? But Robert Frost has said it best: freedom lies in being bold well for six incredible years bold is america out loud welcome to the new era in communications america out loud talk radio trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating your mind races You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption micro-gel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
0: Welcome back. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is the program Faith Is, where we remind each other and we help each other have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And on this Easter weekend, we are celebrating the reality that He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we've been talking about that, and we've been rejoicing in that, and we've been taking a walk in our mind's eye and our imagination through a couple of the holy sites in Israel, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where there is an empty tomb. We saw it with our eyes, or at least as we described it with our eyes, we went on down to the garden tomb, another place that people visit, and there's an empty tomb there, and it reminds us that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The tomb is empty, he validates everything we hope to be true and everything we know to be true, and we are rejoicing in that. We're reminding ourselves that everything rises or falls on resurrection, and we are trusting in the resurrection, resurrected Christ. We are not turning back. We are not giving up. We are doubling down on that reality because Christ is alive. Now, people will throw stones at the resurrection story, and they will call into question certain things. And, and you know, I'm really not concerned about them asking questions. I'm really not concerned about the challenges to the truthfulness of Christian faith. There are a lot of ways to answer them, and there are rather straightforward answers to the questions people raise. Uh, An example of that is some people say, well, if you want to claim Jesus is alive, then then you have to recognize that he didn't really die. He just, and some people call it the swoon theory, he just kind of passed out on the cross. They thought he was dead. They buried him in the tomb, but he later revived because of the coolness of the tomb, and, and he was refreshed, and he got up and moved the stone out of the way, and, and the rest is history. It wasn't really a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. Well, if you study the history of of crucifixion, if you study the efficiency of Rome, you can quickly realize that it would have been impossible for a scenario like that to take place. There, There's way too much evidence to indicate that Jesus really was dead, and it would have been beyond imagination for anybody to have survived and then also moved the stone away in the weakened condition that he would have been in from the cross. It could not have happened that way. So there's, there's all kinds of answers to these things. Uh, there's answers to the theory that the body was stolen. Uh, all you have to do is find the body and produce it in some of these things, and, and that would convince people. But one of the things that really got my attention was something that some of us lived through a number of years ago, and for any of these challenges to Christian faith to have stood up over time— a conspiracy would have had to have lasted a very long time. And some of us lived through the Watergate era when there was a lot of talk about what happened in the break-in at the Watergate complex and the conspiracy then to keep it quiet. Well, one one of the men involved in that, one of the men who actually went to prison for a time because of his role in that, was Chuck Colson. Some of you may remember that name. He was an advisor to then-President Nixon. He was up to his eyeballs and all of that stuff. And he has said and written a lot about the, the events of that and how it changed his life. But he said Watergate proved to him that the resurrection had to have been true. And and you might wonder, well, how is that the case? Well, I remember living through the Watergate, Watergate area and hear, hearing the, the stuff unfold and the news drip out. And and pretty soon it became obvious that that the guys involved couldn't keep quiet. And and Colson sums it up pretty well in a statement. And I and I read what he wrote about that from Chuck Colson, quote: I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, end of quote from Chuck Colson. Well, that's a powerful statement, and, and he, he makes a powerful point. So when you hear, and you may hear this holiday weekend, this Easter weekend, some news reports or reports that presume to be news, that will Cast a challenge on the Christian faith, the reality of resurrection. And almost every year, this time of year, we hear some. So far, I haven't seen any. I've been spared from that. But you may have seen some, someone challenging one aspect or another of the story of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Well, just remember that no matter the challenge, when you look into it, and I've read a considerable amount about it, all of the challenges do not stand up to scrutiny. Too many times when someone challenges Christian faith or the resurrection, they only tell part of the story. They don't consider all of the evidence. So don't be dismayed when you hear things like that. Remember, there are answers to all of these questions. The second thing that that I would remind us about that is it's not really the evidence that we rely on. Oh, I'm an evidence guy, and I remember wondering about that years ago, and I remember how glad I was to discover the writings of some very serious scholars that helped me understand that I could depend upon the reality of the truthfulness of Christian faith. I didn't have to wonder that the evidence was there to persuade me if I was willing to consider it honestly. So I'm not, I'm not at all downplaying the importance of evidence. Evidence helps us. It helped me. It might help you if you're struggling. But what I want to remind us is it's not evidence that changes our lives. It's the event of the resurrection. It's the reality that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That's what changes lives. That's what changes our lives. That's the truth we can, yes, bet our lives on, stake our future on, is the reality that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if he did that, and he did, then he commands our allegiance. He commands us to change our lives and give allegiance to Him and to follow the example He gave and to hold nothing back from Him. So don't be dismayed if you see that kind of stuff. Don't, don't give in to it or, or bow down to it, because just remember, if you look honestly enough, you will absolutely find evidence that will answer your questions and good solid scholarship that helps us have dependable faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of the truth that God has given us in the Scriptures. We don't have to wonder. We need not be dismayed. As, as a teacher of mine said years ago, and I've often thought of this, and it really it helps me, uh, although I don't really struggle with doubts so much like some people do, I've, I've resolved a lot of those because I've studied it. But he said he always reads the Scripture with his feet up. He doesn't worry about challenges, because he knows that he believes in a risen Savior, and anything that comes up can be examined, and the truth will always shine through, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we can trust him. And I want to encourage you to trust him, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to encourage you to put your life in his hands, to turn away from whatever you've been following whatever lifestyle or beliefs you've been following. Maybe you have heartedly been considering Christian faith. Maybe you've never really seriously considered it, but because the whole world pauses on this Easter weekend, you've begun to be aware of it again in a new way. But I want you to encourage you to put your faith in the one who, who kicked his way out of that tomb and is alive today, and we can trust him. Maybe this idea that I heard, this story that I heard from Paul Harvey years ago will help you get a grasp of that. As soon as I heard it, and I would hear on Paul Harvey's broadcast every year this time of year, now Paul Harvey is no longer broadcasting, he's with the Lord now, but he always told this story at, at Easter time to remind us of the reality of the risen Christ he told the story of a Boston preacher who one Easter Sunday, it was a beautiful Easter Sunday, in a marvelously prepared church, immaculate church, then, and beautifully prepared for Easter Sunday service. But the pastor walked out onto that beautiful church platform, carrying a bent-up, beat-up, rusty old birdcage, and he sat it down right beside the pulpit where everybody could see it. The service proceeded, they sang the songs, they read the scriptures, they did all the things that they normally would have done on an Easter Sunday service, and it finally came time for the pastor to deliver his sermon, and so he got up and began to tell them a story, a story that would explain the presence of that beat-up, bed-up, rusty old birdcage in their beautiful sanctuary. The pastor explained that it was spring and he had been out for a walk and enjoying the, the break in the weather and Although it was a bit of a blustery day, it was still a fine day for a walk, and so he went out to enjoy that and, and just to have some, some time for relaxing and refreshment. As he took his walk, he happened upon a, a young boy who was walking toward him. And so he stopped and he engaged the boy in conversation. He noticed that the little boy had with him a bird cage, and in the bird cage, huddled on the floor were a number of birds chilled by the weather and probably by the ordeal of being put in a bird cage. And so the pastor engaged the boy in conversation and finally asked the boy about the birds. He said to him, well, where did you get those birds? And the little boy quickly said, well, I trapped those birds. I caught them. Those are my birds. I put them in the bird cage. I I caught them. I trapped those birds. You know, he's proud of what he had done. And the pastor said, well, that's interesting. Um, now I know where you got the birds, but what are you going to do with the birds? Oh, the boy knew that too. He said, I'm going to play with them. I'm going to have fun with them. These are my birds and, and I'm going to really enjoy playing with these birds. Well, that sounded about right for a young boy to, to think that he would play with the birds and have a good time with them. The pastor didn't have a problem with that, but he went on and he asked him another question. He said, well, son, what are you going to do when you get tired of playing with those birds? Now the pastor knew something about boys and the fact that they would get tired and the boy hadn't thought about that very much. Uh, He hadn't really thought that he would get tired of playing with them because, well, that wouldn't have been something a little boy would think about, but he paused and he thought for a minute and finally he looked up at the pastor and says, I'm going to feed them to my cat. When I'm tired of them, my cat likes birds. I'm going to feed them to my cat. Well, The pastor wasn't terribly surprised by that answer, but he went on to uh, ask the boy another question. And he said to the little boy, well, how much would you take for those birds? Well, that really got the little guy's attention because he couldn't imagine anybody being willing to buy his birds. And so he deferred. He said, well, well, mister, you don't want these birds. These are just old field birds. They're not really good for anything. They don't sing. They're just old field birds. You don't want these birds. Well, the pastor persisted. Yes, son, I'd I'd like those birds. I I really would. Uh, Well, the little guy knew now he had a live one. And so he began to think, okay, what what could he manage here with these birds? He thought for a little bit. He looked up at the pastor and he thought some more. and, And finally, he said to the pastor, $2, I want $2 for my birds. Well, the pastor, without hesitation, reached into his pocket and took out two $1 bills and handed it to the little boy. The little boy all but snatched it out of his hands and put the birdcage down and and took off down the street. I guess the little guy didn't want the pastor to change his mind. He liked the idea of having the $2. Well, now the pastor was in possession of the birdcage, and so he ducked over to the side of where he'd been walking, kind of next to a building where it was a little bit sheltered from the breeze that was blowing. And he knelt down, and he opened the door of the birdcage, and gently and carefully he encouraged those birds to, to hop out and fly away, and one by one, sure enough, they did. Well, now the pastor had explained the presence of a birdcage in a fine Boston church on an Easter Sunday morning, so people understood how he had come into possession of that birdcage. But then the pastor went on to tell what at first seemed like a different unrelated story he told the story of how one day jesus had been out for a walk across the cosmos and he was surveying all that he had created and he in his walk he came upon satan who was also out for a walk and so jesus engaged satan in conversation and said to satan well what have you been up to and satan proceeded to explain to jesus that well what he had been up to was he had caught a world full of people He had trapped them, they were his, and he had this world full of people. Hmm, Jesus said, well, now that you have this world full of people, what are you going to do with this world full of people? Well, Satan said, I'm going to have fun with them. I'm going to play with them. I'm going to have fun with them. I'm going to teach them how to throw missiles at each other, to drop bombs on each other. I'm going to teach them all of the things that will wreak havoc on the world. I'm going to have fun with these people. You're not going to imagine what's going to happen to these people. Well, Jesus said, okay, so when you're finished having these people throw bombs at each other, what are you going to do with them then? Well, without hesitation, and with the coldest eye you could imagine, Satan looked right at Jesus and said this, I'm going to damn them to hell. Well, Jesus wasn't really surprised by that answer, and we shouldn't be either. But the conversation didn't stop there. Jesus went on to inquire of Satan. Well, Satan, what would you take for your world full of people? Well, Satan wasn't entirely unprepared for that question, but he wasn't entirely prepared. But in the moment that elapsed, he looked back at Jesus and with an equally cold eye said to Jesus, you don't want these people. You don't want this world full of people. These people are no good. You do not want these people. These are terrible people. Well, Jesus persisted and and insisted that, that Satan answered his question, what would you like for your world full of people? And again, Satan tried to talk Jesus out of it, but finally he said to Jesus, all of your blood, all of your sweat, and all of your tears. And Jesus paid the price, took the world, and opened the door. And you know, in no small sense, that is exactly the story of the Bible. That Satan does have a world full of people trapped in more evil and mayhem than most of us know how to describe. We see it every day from the war in Ukraine to the evil that people inflict on each other in our neighborhoods, in our communities. We see it on the nightly news from all kinds of things, from children suffering, to domestic problems, to robberies, to murders. Satan really has trapped a world full of people in a world full of mayhem. And sometimes it leads us to wonder, is there any hope for the world? But along comes a man named Jesus, who entered our world of his own free will, sent on a mission by God, His Father, to change all of that. To walk among us as no one had ever walked, to teach us what we could hardly imagine to be true, to help us understand that there was a God in heaven who cared very much for the people of the world and wanted to deliver them from evil, who helped us understand that God had two big things He was working to accomplish in our world, He wanted to crush evil forever because he no longer wanted evil to torment the people he created and loved. And he also wanted to find a way to deliver those people from that evil so they did not have to pay the penalty for their sins. And he did that when he walked the earth, when he told the stories, when he taught the truth. And when he lived out the mission that God had sent for him to live out, when he gathered with his men, his disciples in the upper room, and when he said, taking the cup and breaking the bread, this is my body, this is my blood. When he said that he was doing that for many people, and when we hear that, when we read that, we know that that means us too. Jesus prepared his men, and they walked out from that upper room and down the hill and across the Kidron Valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they couldn't even stay awake while Jesus needed them most. But Jesus went deeper into the garden, and he prayed. and He made the decision, committed himself to the mission God had sent him on, because he said to God, not my will, but yours be done. And they came looking for him, and they didn't find him. Jesus more or less found them, and he surrendered to their evil desires. They took him into custody. They questioned him. They treated him badly. They finally determined that he was worthy of death and took him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him as well and tried to figure out what was going on. Pretty soon, Pilate realized there was more going on here than and met the eye, and he didn't really want to deliver Jesus to death. He was even warned by his wife not to do that. But really, I guess we'd say he caved into the pressure of the moment and finally delivered Jesus to them for crucifixion. The story unfolds, and indeed Jesus was taken to a hill we call Calvary. Sometimes we call it the place of the skull, Golgotha. And there on a cross, the one who had never sinned, Bible says, became sin for us. And in his death for sin, for our sin, he broke the power of sin and canceled that power, so we did not have to live under sin's penalty, the penalty of death. Jesus really did die, and he really was taken down from that cross and he really was placed in a tomb provided by Joseph of Arimathea. And it was late on the, in the day, and the Sabbath was unfolding, and so they placed him in that tomb out of fear of, of mischief. Pilate ordered a guard to, to watch the tomb. But early on what we call Easter Sunday morning, a power greater than Pilate could have ever imagined, or anybody else could have imagined, entered the scene, and rolled that stone away, and out of that grave burst the living Son of God. Resurrection was a reality. And in that resurrection became our hope for all time because our enemy, death, our enemy that entered the world because of our sin, found its match in the resurrection Christ. And we no longer need fear death because he has handled death forever, and he is the author not of death but of life, of resurrection, not of resuscitation, not of, well, let's explain it away. That's impossible. He became the way, the truth, and the life that we could trust, and he is the one, the only one that conquered death for all time. We sometimes don't like to think of ourselves as being trapped in a world full of sin, but in no small way we are, and some of us have built up for ourselves a a persona, an identity that says, well, this is just the way I am. But on this Easter weekend, I would surely like to invite you to reconsider that and realize that because of resurrection, there is something you can become that is much different than the person you think you are today. Because of resurrection, you have hope for new life. And because of resurrection, wherever your life is, it can end differently. And I want to invite you to believe in the event of the resurrection because of the person who rose from the dead. And I want to invite you to change your life, to commit it to following Jesus, to pledge allegiance to him, not just to believe it's true, but to actually make it your life and your mission to live out faithfulness to him. For he will make all the difference for you and for your family. And it won't end all of your problems, but it will begin the solution to all of your problems. And if you persist in faithfulness and if you develop faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, you will discover a meaning in life, a direction in life, a freedom from all of the things that keep you down like you have never been able to imagine. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is. And on this Easter weekend, why don't you take the leap and trust the one who rose from the dead and conquered evil. He will conquer the evil in you. And it's my prayer that you will trust him right now.